So we're Mark chapter 16 this morning. Uh, just thought we'll go through the resurrection story. Love the resurrection story. Um, you know, get our heads a little bit around what was happening in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago and in the nation of Israel. It's, it's important to kind of talk about this a little bit, just to, just to get our bearings, okay? See, the followers of Jesus had been raised with a particular point of view regarding the Messiah, certain expectations regarding what they believed about the Messiah, uh, what they pictured he would be, and what he would accomplish when he came on the scene. And Jesus, whom had only revealed himself three years earlier, cruising around the countryside, preaching the good news, healing, doing all of these things, had fulfilled many of the ideals that the people of Israel held in their hearts and what they believed uh, their scriptures taught them regarding the Messiah. Jesus was a powerful preacher, a miracle worker. He displayed his authority over sickness, you know, as we pray this morning. He displayed his authority over disease, uh, over evil spirits. He raised the dead. He set people free from uh, the legalism that had become their religion with his teaching regarding repentance and uh, forgiveness and love and grace. He even equipped people, average people, you know, he didn't, he didn't take the people that were groomed to be, you know, in religious leadership. He took average people like fishermen and, you know, just regular people. And they followed him and they became, you know, his disciples. He taught uh, women in a culture where they were considered second-class citizens in a lot of ways. He called to himself little children who, although they were, you know, valued and loved in that culture, they were still, it was still that, you know, children are to be seen and not heard kind of thing. Jesus displayed power and authority over the wind and the waves. And so, you know, really when you think about the story of Jesus and his coming on the scene and for three years, this expanding ministry and expanding role that he has among, amongst the Hebrew people, I, I mean, everything was coming along really nicely. I, I mean, just last week we celebrated Palm Sunday. And as Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that a donkey, the, the throngs gathered and they worshiped him. Uh, they sang Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the son of David. They were, they were recognizing the Messiahship of the Lord Jesus. And so like I said, in, in the minds of those who were following him, everything was on track. Everything was on course. Jesus was going to come and establish his kingdom he was going to provide redemption for Israel. He was going to save Israel from her enemies. And, and from Sunday through to Thursday, it was just peaking, 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 peaking. They gathered to celebrate the Passover. That upper room, Jesus with the 12. And in a period of less than 24 hours, uh, almost less than 18 hours, somewhere in there, 18 to 24 hours, everything in the minds of the disciples went totally, totally, totally sideways. You have to know that. It's like every expectation crushed. Jesus was arrested, convicted, 
and crucified before they even knew what was happening. You know, here was Passover weekend, a time of national celebration, a time when annually as a country, they celebrated. God set us free from slavery in Egypt. He brought us out by his mighty hand. He led us by Moses. And one day he's going to send someone greater than Moses. And he is going to be ultimately our Messiah. And so in the midst of a time that should have been a celebration, the disciples were in shock. Uh, They were mourning and they were in grief, (laughs) mourning their loss coming to terms with having their hope crushed. I mean, you think about hope in your life and what it's like to just have hope crushed. This was the greatest sense that that had ever happened for them to have their hope crushed. You know, Brian read to us actually the account of the two disciples who were walking on the road to Emmaus when Jesus came and appeared in his resurrected body to them. And they as they were telling him and as he was asking them what was going on, they said, we hoped he was the one. We hoped that he was the Messiah. And, and they said to Jesus, they told him and they, they asked him, they said, who are you? Don't you know that there's like not a soul who doesn't, we were laughing about this this morning actually. You know, it's kind of a funny conversation that's happening between those disciples and Jesus. As he asked them questions and they say, don't you know? And I was thinking about it. I think that's so great. They're saying to God, don't you know? (laughs) No, I don't know. Maybe you should tell me. Was Jesus' response? Tell me what's going on. And he said, man, we had hoped. And Jesus was crucified on that Friday. Sabbath beginning at Friday at sundown. And so Jesus was buried in in a hurried fashion. Uh, those who were left in charge of his body uh, quickly grabbed him. They probably had, you know, a few hours to prep his body and to get it into, th- into the tomb. And so they quickly did it. He was crucified between two thieves, but buried with the rich, Isaiah prophesied. And so Jesus was placed in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, Pharisee, a rich man and Those who buried him did so quickly so that they would not personally be left unclean at Friday on sundown so that they could still celebrate Passover. So they got him in the tomb. They said, we'll come back and we'll deal with this later. Did the bare minimum with that return to, with that intention to return on the Sabbath and to finish the traditions and the process that was involved in preparing a body and burying a loved one. And so when they, Hastily dealt with him. They rolled the stone in front of the tomb. And with the Sabbath being a day of rest, uh, their restrictions were, the, the, the religious law now restricted their movements. Uh, they couldn't walk too far. There was lots of things that they couldn't do because it was a holiday, because it was Passover, because it was the Sabbath. And um, they waited until Saturday at sundown and then they would then, prepare to go and see Jesus again on Sunday morning and to deal with his body. Now, amazingly, in the story is this, that Sabbath restrictions and Passover restrictions and law did not stop the teachers of the law or the chief priests of the Pharisees 
uh, who on multiple levels broke their own traditions to go to the home of Pilate, a Gentile, and to say, look, there's this rumor floating around. In fact, Jesus himself taught that after three days he would rise. And so we want to make sure that his disciples don't go steal his body and then, you know, spread this rumor that he, ra- he was raised from the dead. And so to ensure that, we're asking you if you would somehow seal the tomb or protect the tomb so that Jesus' body couldn't be stolen. And so the gospel tells us that Pilate gave the order. The tomb was actually sealed shut. The seal of Rome was on that tomb. And that he posted a guard in front of uh, that stone that had been rolled there. And now a guard was anywhere from four to 16 soldiers. Uh, you got to just think because it's the gospels. I imagine that there were 16 soldiers there, not 14. And we pick it up. In Mark chapter 16, verse 1, and it says this. We'll just work our way through part of this story this morning. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Wonderful intentions from these ladies. They love Jesus. And, and so... They wanted to anoint his body for burial. They wanted to see that the proper customs were taken care of. Uh, What they had failed to grasp in the life and ministry of Jesus was this, that his body had already been anointed for burial. Too late. Because one night when Jesus was in the home of the Pharisees, the gospels tell us that Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha, came And she poured oil over him and she wiped his feet with her hair. And this is the same Mary whose habit and and life posture really was to sit at the feet of Jesus. Wherever you see her in the gospel stories, you find her sitting at the feet of her master being taught with a heart to worship. That was her life posture. You know, when she was grieving, And in times of loss, like when her brother Lazarus died, what did she do? She called on Jesus. During times of worship, she sat at his feet and anointed him for burial. That was her posture and her life posture. And the disciples, in particular Judas, uh, the money-hungry one, rebuked her for her act of pouring out that expensive perfume. He said, that money that's like a year's wages, that could have been given to the poor. And Jesus piped up in a way that you don't often see him doing the gospels. And he said this, leave her alone. She's done a beautiful thing to me. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. So Jesus was already anointed for burial. We read in verse two this. It says that and very early On the first day of the week, Sunday, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And so these ladies are on the way to the tomb. Um, They're on the way there with a purpose. They are going to see Jesus. That's what they're going to do. And it's just that I would say this. Things are going to be way better. I mean, we know the end of the story. Things are going to be way better than they ever expected or imagined. So let's not get to the end of the story yet. Let's remember the expectation that they carried. Let's remember that in their minds, they were going to anoint a lifeless body. But what they were going to discover is that Jesus was alive. You know what the word of God promises us? 
that those who seek me find me. In Deuteronomy, Moses declared this promise to the people of God. He said, if, here's the key, if. He said, if you seek the Lord your God, you will find him. If you seek, with him, seek for him with all of your heart and with all of your soul. In Chronicles chapter, uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 28 verse 9 says this. If you seek him, he will be found by you. Uh, Proverbs, it says this. I love those who love me and those who seek me, find me. Jesus taught his disciples, seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be open. Ask and you will receive. See, these women were experiencing a, a time of personal loss, of grief, of sorrow, confusion, a discouragement. I think depression had crept into their hearts. And from that heart space and in that head space, they went looking for who? Jesus. You know the name Jesus means, we call it the Hebrew way to say it, Yeshua. Joshua in English, Jesus. It means the Lord is salvation. But the problem in their minds was that Jesus was dead. The Lord is salvation was dead. That's a contradiction. The Lord is salvation was dead. No, he wasn't. If the Lord is salvation, he can't be dead. He cannot be dead. And what do you think happens to the heart that is experiencing sadness and grief and discouragement and depression and yet goes looking for Jesus as the word of God promises? Those who seek me, find me. It was very early in the morning, just after sunrise. And of course, the sun had risen in more ways than one. You know, early in the morning is a good time to seek Jesus. For his light to rise on your heart and to just drive out darkness. To drive out the darkness that creeps in your lives. You know, I'd encourage you, rise early and seek Jesus. You know, Friday was such a good day. I just totally enjoyed our worship in the morning and the Good Friday service. And as my day went on, you know, I just, nothing went sideways or weird or anything, but, you know, it's just life. I thought, man, here's the end of the day already, and I need Jesus so bad. This morning was so good. And just moment by moment, I, I just need the Lord. And we need Jesus Christ every day. Rise early and let his light drive out the darkness. And you know, on the basis of his mercy, he does that for us. Every time we come to him, every time, he drives it out. And every day we need that, that fresh vision of who he is, a fresh vision of his holiness, a fresh vision of his mercy, a fresh vision of his grace. We need to recognize that he has a desire to, to bless us as Phil taught us last week. Uh, to, that as we draw near to him, he just wants to bless. And it's such a wonderful opportunity that you think about it as we think about Jesus and his desire to just want to be with his people and he gives that to us every day, fresh and new. Early in the morning, these ladies went looking for Jesus. Verse 3, it says, And they were saying to one another, Who will roll the stone 
for us from the entrance of the tomb. I love this part of the story. These ladies are going to the tomb and in their minds, they are about to face something that for them was an insurmountable obstacle. Who will roll the stone from the, tomb, from the entrance to the tomb? We're going to read here in a moment that it was a large stone, an unusually large stone for a tomb. It's a rich man's tomb. It was a beautiful tomb. And that question in the original language communicate, is communicated in the imperfect tense. It means this. The question was an unanswered question. And not only that, as you read the Gospels, it was a question that was dominating the conversation as they walked to the tomb. It wasn't asked one time, is what I'm trying to say. This was the conversation on the way to the tomb. They're going to say Jesus, but there's something in the forefront of their mind. There's a stone in the way. How are we going to get past it? Who will roll the stone away from the entrance to the tomb? Do you think maybe if all of us get together, you know, the four of us or whatever it was, and we lean on that thing? I don't know. Maybe when we get there, if we could find something in the garden, maybe we could pry it. I don't know. Maybe there'll be somebody around who could help us. And in my mind, as they're walking, I just can hear the silence come over them. And then they'd say, how are we going to move the stone? Another lady might answer, I don't don't know. I don't know what we're going to do. See, this stone was exceedingly large, exceedingly great. And it's amazing how the human mind so quickly gets fixated on obstacles that stand in the way between us and God. And Although this was a large stone, it wasn't impossible to move. But its exceeding greatness grew in the minds of these ladies as they talked about it. How are we going to move that stone? You know what the Bible says in Isaiah uh, chapter 26 verse 3? You will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in you. In Hebrews it says... Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. See, one of the ways that Jesus brings into perfection our faith is in demonstrating his ability to move the stones that are in our lives. These large obstacles that seem impossible for us to move, that that seem like insurmountable objects, these And and, and these obstacles become something by which he demonstrates his glory. You know, sometimes those obstacles in our minds become just a mental block where it's just seemingly immovable. And we think, how how are we going to get to Jesus when that is in the way? And you know, I might just ask you, you got an impossible situation going on in your life. Is there an object that is standing between you and Christ and you think, how is this ever going to be moved? I don't don't know what I'm going to do here. And I would say this. Maybe it's not your stone to move. Because these ladies are about to find out that that stone at the tomb was not theirs to move. And the truth is, is that when we begin to make our way to Jesus... In his power, he can move that which is immovable. He says, those who seek me 
will find me. And at this point, you know, these ladies are consumed with these questions on how to move the stone. That, that theme had dominated their conversation. It was a legitimate question, but there were really more obstacles in their way than they even knew, than just, just the stone. I mean, there was way more to it than that. There were things that they didn't even know about the stone. They didn't know that chief priests and teachers of the law had gone to Pilate and that Pilate had sealed the tomb. They didn't know that there was a post of Roman guard in front of that tomb. And see, the obstacles, the stones that stand between us and the Lord are always much bigger than, than we think. There are always other things in play. Other things at work seeking to hinder you from getting to Jesus. Like priests and teachers of the law. Who attempt to seal off access to the risen Lord by their rituals and their rules and their legalisms. And in those things, Rome puts its stamp. You know, Rome in the Bible is a symbol of paganism and idolatry. And in those rules and those legalisms, that is the stamp of approval of paganism and idolatry is placed into that. There was the Roman guard of 16 soldiers, men who faced, you know, severe punishment, uh, likely death, should they fail at their assignment. And then, of course, there was the unseen forces, Satan and his soldiers who were attempting to stand their ground and to stop those ladies from discovering that they had a risen Lord. And see, their, their presence and their functioning, all of those things, the seal, the stamp, the soldiers, the workers of Satan, were all designed to deter those ladies, to deter us and to set fear in the hearts of those ladies, to set discouragement in the hearts of the ladies, to, to set that in, in our heart, you know, seeking to drive away those who would look to come to Christ. And you know, for you and I, there's far more in the way than, than you and I even realize. But the Bible says when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. Look at verse four. And looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. The stone, you know, I would say was not rolled out, rolled out of the way to let Jesus out. John chapter 20 verse 19 tells us that in his resurrection body, Jesus could pass through walls. You know, he was no longer subject to physical material obstacles. And so the stone was not rolled out of the way to let Jesus out. Jesus was gone. The stone, he, he passed through before the stone was moved. The stone was rolled out of the way by the angel so that those ladies could go in and see that the tomb was empty and that they could be persuaded that Jesus had risen from the dead. And I was reading in Matthew this week, just looking at the story. Matthew tells a great thing. I just, it just jumped out at me. He says this, the angel rolled the stone and then he sat on it. 
And all the gospels give you a little bit of a different, and it's just cool how when the ladies came to the tomb, according to Matthew, the first place that they saw the angel was sitting on the stone. What a picture. I wonder if he had legs crossed. <laughs> Having a sip of something to drink. I don't know what he was doing. And then did he just hop off? Whoop, jump down off that big stone and say, come on in. Let's, let's go look. He was sitting on the stone to show the victory of God over that tomb. And so these ladies met some surprises. You know, the stone was rolled away. The obstacle that was so big in their minds and that was serving as a stumbling block for them spiritually, that it dominated their thoughts, was removed before they even arrived. Isn't that amazing? Removed before they, they arrived. And the angel spoke these words to them. In all of the gospel accounts, don't be afraid. Don't fear. Now, fear has such a powerful, powerful effect on the human heart. Fear actually detaches us from, from reality. Fear detaches us from the reality of, of God's kingdom. I, I actually think fear is kind of like, it's, it has an enchantment to it. It's magical. It's like it's a spell. It enchants us and when fear grips the heart, we become subject to fear rather than subject to Christ. We become subject to fear rather than subject to the reality of the promises of God. And the angel spoke this word, don't be afraid. And the spell was broken. Don't be afraid. See, that's what the word of God does. The word of God dispels fear in the human heart. Breaks enchantment. The stone was rolled away. They went in the tomb and Mark tells us there was one angel, focuses on the angel on the right-hand side. The other gospels tell us that there was two angels. It's this powerful picture. Actually, uh, almost was gonna, I should have put it up on the screen for you, but here's the picture. Think of the Ark of the Covenant. The lid that sits on the Ark of the Covenant is called the mercy seat. It's the very throne of God. And on, on earth, and on that lid was an angel on the right and on the left. And the Old Testament tells us that their wings were extended and they reached forth and they touched in the middle. And there was this place in the middle of the mercy seat where when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, he would bring the blood of the sacrifice and he would apply it to the mercy seat, the throne of God. Now you got two angels in a tomb and they say this, he is not here. I imagine they stretched out their arms and their fingers touched and there was the blood. It was a picture of the mercy seat that Christ had laid down his life. On their behalf, his blood had been shed and they were purchased and their sins were forgiven. You know, the gospels tell something really incredible too that neatly folded where Jesus' body had been laid um, was the linen, the linen garments that had wrapped his body. And I find that amazing because I thought men couldn't fold clothes <laughs> and or make beds. I thought you dropped your clothes on the floor. So guys, Jesus made his bed and folded his clothes. So we're all in trouble, okay? The news was this from the angel that Jesus is alive. He is risen. He is not 
He is not here. See the place where they laid him. You know, the Colossians tells us that Jesus is the firstborn among the dead. Meaning this, he is the very first to be resurrected. Now, there's all sorts of stories about people being resurrected from the dead in the Bible. Old Testament, New Testament, Jesus raised people from the dead. Jesus raised Jairus' daughter. He raised uh, Lazarus. He raised the widow's son. You know, there was the widow's son in 2 Kings that was raised from the dead. There was the dude that was thrown into Elisha's tomb and came to life when he touched Elisha's bones. Uh, there were those who came out of the tombs like we saw on Friday at the Good Friday service who, who were resurrected when Jesus uh, was crucified and died. See, they were raised from the dead in the sense that they were resuscitated. They were raised from the dead in the sense that they came to life back in the same body that they had already lived once. And eventually again, they died. Jesus' resurrection was different. When we talk about the resurrection that we are one day going to have, it's different than all of those Bible stories. Jesus' resurrection is unique. It wasn't just a coming to life again. The scripture tells us that that which is imperishable will be raised, uh, sorry, that which is perishable will be raised imperishable. That we are going to receive from the Lord a new body. And it will be similar to the old body in certain ways. You know, those who saw Jesus recognized him in his resurrection body. But his resurrection body was designed for eternity. Your resurrection body is going to be, it's, this is the tent, remember? There's going to be a body that comes that's designed for all eternity. And it will no longer be hid, uh, hindered by physical material things. Like we see in Jesus' story, walking through walls and this and that. You know that the resurrection body, I believe the scripture teaches this, has no blood in it. It's flesh and bone. Jesus spilt out his blood on the cross. With his blood, he purchased men. And rather than blood cursing through the veins of his body, the, the resurrected body is truly empowered by the Holy Spirit. You know, one time that Jesus appeared to his disciples and they, they were questioning him, he said this to them, look at my hands and feet, touch me, it is I myself. A ghost does not have flesh and bones like you see I have. No mention of the blood. He's got open wounds. Pierced side, pierced feet, pierced hands. And so you, you see the, the word of God teaches us if there's a natural body, there's a spiritual body. The first man, Adam, became a life-giving, a life, a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit, the Bible says. The first man was of the dust of the earth, and the second man was from heaven. And just as we are born in the likeness of the earthly man, Adam, so we will be born resurrected in the likeness of the heavenly man, Jesus. Isn't that awesome? That is awesome, people of God. We will be raised imperishable. We will be changed. The Bible says for those who are here and raptured, it will happen in the blink of an eye. Uh, that, that death will be swallowed up in victory and that, vic that victory comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we talk about the glorious nature of the resurrection and Jesus being raised from the dead, 
See, the resurrection proves the validity of what was accomplished on the cross. Jesus took on himself and bore in his body the punishment for sins, the, the wrath of God that our sins deserved. He died, he was buried, and he was raised from the dead. Father didn't leave him forsaken in the grave. Death is conquered. The power of sin is broken by the work of the cross. And we don't, you know, live this life just trying to imitate Jesus who we serve. We've been given an identity in him. We've been given a new nature by him. Jesus has imparted to us the Holy Spirit who lives in us. And the Bible says, in the spirit, we live and we move and we have our being. Amen? And his spirit teaches us how to live. His spirit teaches us to understand all that we've been freely given in this new identity and this new birth that we have through Jesus Christ. See, the Bible says Jesus, who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. And it says this, through him and for his name's sake, we have received grace. The unmerited favor of God, my friends. See, Jerry prayed this morning a beautiful prayer. I thought, man, he must have been reading my notes. He said this, or I'm going to say this. He said it kind of very similar. The resurrection means that Jesus is completely different, complete, completely unique among all the religions and what we might call gods in this world. It's because of the resurrection from the dead that we should never, ever, I believe, describe faith in Jesus Christ as a religion, but rather as a relationship. Or as we were reminded last week, as a friendship with God. I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. The angel said to the ladies in verse 7, but go tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee and there you will see him just as you were told. I love that. See, the, the angel immediately commissioned these ladies. You are to be heralds, proclaimers of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And in your message, specifically, there's someone that we would like, the, the angel says, there's someone that I would like you to single out. I want you to go to Peter and specifically, you tell this message to Peter. Communicate specifically to that man because he feels that his denial is worse than everyone else. So speak to this one who, who feels that, that their failure and their sense of loss is worse than everyone else. See, you know, we know the story of Peter. He, he is grieving. Peter is in the midst of the deepest spiritual valley of his life. He, he on that night that Jesus was betrayed... Did the same move as Judas. See, Judas betrayed Jesus, but the Bible says, so did Peter betray Jesus. Judas expressed sorrow. Peter expressed repentance. That's the difference between Judas and Peter. Judas, in his sorrow, went and hung himself. And Peter, in repentance, 
was grieving and had his hope crushed. And the angel said to those ladies, you go tell Peter that there's a message from God from him. That though he's in the deepest spiritual valley of his life, although he's denied his Lord three times, although that sense of failure has gripped him and left him depressed and crushed and like he has no hope that God will ever use him again. You go to that man who's sensing that particular pain in his life and you tell him that Jesus has hope for him, that there is special forgiveness for him, that there is a restoration and that God is going to use him for the glory of the kingdom. And I don't know where you're at. I don't know where you're feeling like you're at with, maybe you're here and I'm like, you've, experience that disowning of Christ, sensing in your life that you've betrayed him. I'll tell you what, Jesus is not finished with you yet. Just like he wasn't finished with Peter, he's not finished with you. You return to him in repentance and faith. You rest in his grace. In verse eight, it says this, and they went out and they fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment that had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. When it says these ladies uh, said nothing, that, that, this must have been pretty impactful. That's all I can think. Four or five ladies traveling around Jerusalem together. They had nothing to say. And uh, they fled from the tomb. I would say this. They didn't know what to say. As they were trying to digest all that they had seen and heard, they were afraid. But the fear wasn't the same kind of fear that had gripped them when they saw the angel. Uh, this was the kind of fear that's a, a mixture of, it's got a mixture of amazement in it. Man, I don't understand what's going on, but this is amazing. This kind of freaks me out. But man, it's amazing. Yeah, but it freaks me out. Okay, it's, it's that kind of fear. They had seen strange sights. And what's interesting in the story, and what I love about the, the, the story of the resurrection is this. The women faced one type of obstacle, the stone the men in the story faced another type of obstacle. Let's read through to verse 14. Picking up in verse 9, actually. 9 to 14. Now when, when he rose early on the first day of the week and he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons, and she went and told those who had been with him. And as they mourned and wept, and when they heard that he was alive and, and had been seen by her, they would not believe. Verse 12, and after these things, he appeared in another form to two of them. We read that account from Luke this morning, the road to Emmaus. And as they were walking into the country and they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the 11 themselves as they were reclining at the table and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who, had saw, who saw him after he had risen. Uh, Mark tells us that the disciples ignored the facts, that the disciples ignored the accounts of the eyewitnesses. They ignored the testimony of those who had witnessed, seen, and spoken to the risen Jesus Christ. And you think about Mary Magdalene, the first witness that's listed here. A great witness. And Jesus appeared first to her, we read. 
She had been among the women who had traveled with Jesus when he was touring and preaching. She'd helped cared for his needs. Uh, she was at the cross standing there with Jesus' mother. Mary Magdalene was amongst those group of women that went to that tomb that Sunday morning um, to deal with Jesus' body and to see where it was. You know, actually the, the gospels tell us that she was there at the cross and she saw where the body was laid when Joseph of Arimathea buried Jesus. When Jesus first appeared to Mary, some of the gospel accounts tell us that she thought he was the gardener and she said, if you've taken him, tell me where you've put him. And it was when Jesus said her name, Mary, that he recognized her and she cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher, but it means more than that. It means my great master, my great master, I don't know the exact order of how this all went down, but the ladies had all headed off to, to tell the disciples the, the message from the angel. And Peter and John ran to the tomb to see for themselves. And when uh, they went and looked in the empty tomb, the Bible says they returned to their homes. But Mary stood outside the tomb weeping. And at some point in there, she met the gardener, Jesus. And he revealed himself to her. They've taken my Lord away and I don't know where they've put him. And then she turned and saw Jesus. That's the first witness. The second set of witnesses is that account that we had read to us this morning from Acts chapter 20, or Luke chapter 24. The two dudes on the road to Emmaus, they walked with him, they talked with him, they ate with him, and when they recognized him, whew, he vanished from their presence. See, the 11 ignored the facts. The 11 ignored the accounts. And so when Jesus appeared to them, he rebuked them. It's interesting that he also rebuked the men on the road to Emmaus. He didn't coddle them. Say, yeah, I understand why you didn't believe. He did not coddle that behavior. He rebuked unbelief. See, the ladies may have had a physical obstacle in front of them called a stone, but the men had a spiritual obstacle in front of them and it was the issue of belief. Belief versus unbelief. And Jesus rebuked that stubborn refusal to believe, that lack of faith. You know, the Bible says that there's just one thing that matters to God, faith. Faith is the, the economy of the kingdom. Belief or unbelief. One issue See, Jesus didn't scat he didn't he didn't scold the disciples for scattering when he was arrested. He didn't berate Peter for denying him. He didn't rip into them for mourning and for feeling sad. He didn't even, you know, get on them for allowing fear to creep in. One issue, one issue Jesus pointed out: stubborn refusal to believe, a lack of faith. They did not understand everything that had happened, you know, but for Jesus, that wasn't excuse enough. And I would say this, and those who are disciples of Jesus, look, a lack of understanding what God is doing and a refusal to believe does not negate the facts. 
A lack of understanding what God is doing in your life does not excuse hardness of heart towards God. Refusal to believe does not negate the facts of our responsibility to appropriately respond to those facts. You know, I would say this unbelief is a thief. Unbelief will rob you. It will rob you of experiencing the presence of God. It will rob you of uh, seeing God work. And the solution is this. The solution on belief is actually really simple. Belief. Wow. Belief. In faith, believe. And sometimes stating that obvious thing is so powerful. In faith, Believe in Jesus Christ and the facts of his resurrection from the dead. Even when you can't see the forest for the trees, you, you must in faith trust his promises. And fear can cast a spell on you, but Jesus is worthy of your trust. Unbelief might be a thief that robs you of your assurance and robs you of your trust, but the Bible promises Jesus works for the good of those who, lo- who love him and are called according to his purposes. You know, I uh, talked a little bit on Friday about human wisdom and godly wisdom. Pascal said something like this. I don't have it in this, in this sermon exactly, but he said something like this. Human wisdom works this way. Uh, under, understanding comes first and then we believe. He said, godly wisdom works the opposite. Believing comes first and understanding follows. And the Bible says this in Romans 8, chapter 31, verse 32. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? See, two types of people in the resurrection story facing two types of very different obstacles. For the ladies, an insurmountable physical object. One bigger and greater uh, than they even realized. The men also faced an insurmountable object, a heart problem, a heart condition. It's called hardness of heart. It's a spiritual disease. unbelief, a lack of faith. What Jesus said was a stubborn refusal to believe. And the solution for either problem, the physical problem or the spiritual problem is this. Go looking for Jesus. Go looking for Jesus. If you seek me, you will find me. If you seek the Lord your God, You will find him if you look for him with all of your heart and with all of your soul. Whereas it says in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 9, if you seek him, he will be found by you. Or as Jesus said, Jesus speaking in the book of Proverbs, I love those who love me and those who seek me find me. See, when you set your heart to honor Jesus, when your intent is to honor him, what you will discover is that time and time again, he will remove the difficulties that are in front of you. He will remove those obstacles when you make your way to him. It's Easter Sunday. 
It's awesome. He is risen. Come on, can we do that again? He is risen. You know, the Bible says this, that you are created in the image of God, uh, formed in his likeness, made from the dust of the earth, designed to reflect his glory and his goodness to all of creation. But the Bible also teaches this, that, that man, in his design, rebelled against God, turned his heart, in hardness of heart towards God, said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to, be the Lord of my own life. And the Bible calls that sin, that it, that it breaks relationship with God to say, I'm going to be the Lord of my own life. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to do what I desire. Man created in his image, designed to bear his likeness, severed the relationship with the holy God when he said, I'll be the Lord of my own life. And Jesus came for that very purpose, to restore the relationship that existed between man and God so that, so that there could be relationship again. And the thing about the relationship with God is this, is that because God is holy and he's perfect and he's righteous and in him there is no sin, and we're exactly the opposite, there's nothing that we can ever do to bridge the gap that exists between us and God in that broken relationship. And so God initiated. God sent Jesus. He, he initiated from, that, that's why the gospel is godly wisdom. It's why it's foolishness to man because it's, it's not rooted in what man has done. It's rooted in what God has done. And God sent his son, Jesus. He lived a perfect life. He did all the things that we talked about this morning. And he went to the cross for the purpose of fixing the broken relationship, restoring, redeeming, healing, so that by the shedding of his blood and the forgiveness of sins, we could have relationship with God. And the, Bi the Bible teaches this. The way to enter into that is by what we talked about this morning, by faith, by belief, by trust and rest in the work of what was accomplished on that cross in that empty tomb. And this morning, I, you know, I don't know everybody here. Maybe you don't know Jesus. Maybe you've never surrendered your life to him. And this morning, I, I want to give you that opportunity. And so we're going to close in prayer.